0: Hey, it's Patrick. It's been almost a year since we released Wind of Change, and I have some exciting news for you about a new project. At the same time as I was working on the podcast, I was also reporting and writing a new book. It's called Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. And if you enjoyed Wind of Change, I think you'll really like this book. Empire of Pain is about the Sackler family, a wealthy American philanthropic dynasty known for its generosity in the arts and the sciences. If you go to the Metropolitan Museum in New York, you'll see the Sackler Wing, and there are Sackler galleries and halls at the Guggenheim, Harvard University, the British Museum, the Louvre, and on and on. What wasn't widely known until quite recently was the source of the wealth that allowed the Sacklers to be so generous. They sold the fantastically successful painkiller OxyContin, a prescription drug that helped spark the opioid crisis. The book is a big sweeping family saga about this secretive family and the mark that they left on the world. The more I dug into the family, the more I realized that this was a story with endless twists and drama. Billionaires behaving badly, fist fights in boardrooms, a contentious estate battle, infidelity, suicide, criminal investigations, corruption, family secrets. I narrated the audiobook. And we wanted to give Wind of Change listeners an early taste. So, what we're going to do is play you a chapter. And the chapter we're going to play you is about one especially dark family secret in particular. I hope you enjoy the chapter. And afterward, I hope you'll consider going out and buying the book or the audiobook, which is available wherever audiobooks are sold. You don't need much setup here. Really, the only thing you need to know going in is that Raymond Sackler, who I refer to at the end of the chapter, is one of the original 3 Sackler brothers, kind of one of the one of the patriarchs of this story who owned Purdue Pharma, which is the company that marketed OxyContin. So without further ado, here's chapter 16 of Empire of Pain. Chapter 16 H-bomb. Calixto Rivera woke before dawn. Outside, it was cold and raining, a sodden April morning in 1995. Calixto lived in Newark, New Jersey, in an apartment with his wife and children. The couple had a three-month-old son, which could be exhausting. And when Calixto opened his eyes that morning and registered just how unpleasant it was outside, he thought about calling in sick and skipping work. He was worn out. Like everyone else at the Knapp chemical plant in Lodi, he had been putting in extra shifts in order to finish off several big projects before the plant closed that weekend for several weeks of renovations. Still toying with the idea of going back to bed, Calixto telephoned a woman he worked with, as if looking for some tacit permission. But she urged him to power through. It's only an eight-hour shift, Papo, she said, using a nickname he'd had since childhood. Just get through the next eight hours and you'll have two weeks to stay in bed. So Calixto murmured a quiet goodbye to his family and headed out into the rain for work. Lodi is a working class borough near Hackensack where a series of chemical plants lie scattered among quiet residential neighborhoods. The chemical and pharmaceutical industries had long dominated the state of New Jersey. In 1995, the chemical business was the state's biggest industry, generating some $24 billion in revenue every year. New Jersey had nearly 15,000 chemical plants. There were 14 just in Lodi. The Knapp facility occupied a sprawling two-story complex on the banks of the Saddle River. It had originally been a turn-of-the-century dye works, and the plant was still surrounded by the vestigial shells of abandoned industrial buildings. Knapp had purchased the Lodi property in 1970, in order to manufacture the chemicals for its pharmaceuticals. Lately, the mayor of Lodi had been trying to shut the plant down, looking to find a commercial developer so that they could launch condemnation proceedings against NAP. Local residents didn't like having an aging chemical facility in their backyard. It made them nervous. Calixto Rivera had been working at NAP for nine years. His family was originally from Puerto Rico and had relocated to New Jersey. He was a hard worker, strong and handsome, a fastidious dresser with a mustache and dark eyebrows, which accented his facial expressions, like punctuation marks. He trudged through the cold rain to the plant. It was going to be an interesting day. The company had restructured a couple of years earlier and started mixing chemicals, not just for Knapp and its parent company, Purdue Frederick, but for other firms that needed batches of chemicals mixed on a contract basis. This meant that rather than processing the same raw chemicals for the same nap products week in and week out, Calixto and his colleagues were now working with new and unfamiliar chemicals each day. This week, they'd been hired by a Rhode Island company to mix a series of particularly volatile chemicals that would be used to create the gold plating on consumer electronics. 20 steel drums had arrived at the plant a few days earlier with warnings on the side that indicated that the contents were hazardous. For a few days, the chemicals just sat there in a corner because nobody was particularly eager to handle them. When Calixto reached the gates of Nap, something was clearly off. The plant operated around the clock on three eight-hour shifts, and it was time for the morning shift change. The night shift had been mixing the chemicals that had arrived in those drums. But as Calixto learned when he got to the plant, something had gone wrong. The truth was, the Knapp facility was not the safest workplace. The plant had been cited for numerous violations. Knapp paid its employees at the facility less than the going rate offered by other chemical companies in the area, and it was known to hire people who had been fired from other jobs. It was an open secret around Lodi. If you were desperate and willing to work for less, Knapp was happy to take you on. As one employee put it, if your body was warm, they hired you. There was one guy at the plant who was an alcoholic and occasionally came to work and handled dangerous chemicals while drunk. The staff didn't have much training, and their inexperience became only more pronounced when the plant started taking on outside contract work to generate extra revenue for the owners, which meant that employees were dealing with new chemicals all the time. Safety training did not appear to be a major company priority. A further issue was the diversity of the workforce. Employees at the plant came from numerous different countries. Not all of them spoke English, but there was also no other single shared language like Spanish. As a consequence, there could occasionally be misunderstandings about quantities and proportions, which, when it comes to mixing chemicals, was a hazardous scenario. To do the mixing, the plant workers used a 10-foot-tall, double-lobed Patterson-Kelly blender which was constructed of stainless steel and shaped like a giant heart. They had started mixing the Rhode Island chemicals the previous day, adding 8,000 pounds of sodium hydrosulfite to the blender, along with 1,000 pounds of aluminum powder, a substance so explosive that it is sometimes used in rocket fuel. A supervisor stood watch on a catwalk above as the silvery-white powder settled in the mixer. Next, the staff was supposed to add benzaldehyde, a colorless liquid that would be sprayed into the mixer through a nozzle. But there was some kind of blockage in the valve, which meant that they had to troubleshoot and clean it. By the time the graveyard shift commenced the previous evening, a terrible smell had started to emanate from the mixer. Some of the employees were so inexperienced that when it came to chemicals, they couldn't tell a good smell from a bad one but others recognized the telltale eggy stench of decomposing sodium hydrosulfite. As a general rule, you're not supposed to get water on chemicals. There were signs in the mixing room, do not use water inside or near the room. Even a single drop can be deadly. Sodium hydrosulfite in particular reacts violently when wet. It wasn't clear how it happened exactly, but somewhere in the process of trying to clear the old feeding valve on the mixer, Some water must have gotten inside. The maintenance workers who had been brought in to clean the valve were not trained in the handling of chemicals, and it might have been the case that they did not fully appreciate the danger. In high concentrations, wet sulfur can be more poisonous than cyanide gas. So when the smell started, the managers on duty told staff to leave the vat alone and work on other projects. They opened a valve on the top of the mixer to allow any gas to escape. Everything was fine, they said. Then they left the mixer alone for hours. Gradually, the temperature and pressure gauges on the mixer began to climb. The chemicals were smoldering and bubbling, like the contents of some infernal cauldron, and emitting this sickening, noxious smell. Some of the workers thought it smelled like a dead animal. While Calixto had been sleeping through the rainy night in his apartment in Newark, the pressure gauge on the tank kept rising. There was a fire station 100 yards away from the plant, but staff did not alert them. The Knapp Pharmaceutical Company liked to keep things private and to deal with any problems discreetly. By the time Calixto arrived at shift change that morning, the whole plant was being evacuated. At the gates, Calixto met with a friend of his, Jose Milan who was also about to start the next shift. Jose was a veteran of the plant, like Calixto. He had been working there for eight years. Everybody was standing around, shivering in the frigid drizzle and grumbling. People hadn't had time to grab coats from their lockers when they evacuated, so they were cold. They were also apprehensive. The malodorous smell from the mixer was so intense now that it was drifting out of the vents on the roof of the plant, and the men could smell it outside. It smelled dangerous. As Calixto and Jose congregated in the rain with the other evacuated workers, a shift supervisor announced that someone had spoken to a chemical engineer at Knapp, who had advised that the men go back into the plant and try to empty out some of the material in the mixer. A team of seven men was selected. It didn't include Calixto or Jose. So Jose proposed that they walk to a nearby deli and grab a coffee. But as Calixto watched the managers designate this impromptu cleanup crew to go in and remove the chemicals, he noticed that one of the people chosen was an older guy, a man he knew who was nearly 70. Don't go, Calixto told him. I'll go in your place. The company would later maintain that managers did not order the men to reenter the plant, but a dozen workers who were there that day said that they did. Calixto asked Jose to pick up an extra coffee and bring it back for him. Then he and the other six men put on face masks with carbon filters and walked back into the plant. Inside, the nap plant was eerily quiet. The smell was overpowering, but the men moved through it, toward it, and into the blending room. What they could not see or know was that when water crept into the vat, it caused the sodium hydrosulfite to break down, which generated heat. The heat produced steam, which reacted with the aluminum powder to create hydrogen gas. Inside the great hull of the mixer, a chain reaction had initiated, and the pressure had been building hour upon hour. As one chemist would subsequently observe, the contents of the steel drum had the makings of a hydrogen bomb. None of the men who went back into the plant was a chemist. When they reached the mixing room, they opened the vat, and started to empty the smoldering chemicals into smaller barrels. Then, suddenly, there was a loud hissing noise. The sound of gas rapidly escaping. Then a moment of silence. Six of the men, including Calixto, stood there frozen. A seventh man started sprinting away. Then, boom, the steel mixer popped like a balloon and scraps of metal and white-hot chemicals exploded in every direction. The blast was so strong that it lifted the 10-ton block of concrete that supported the mixer clear off the ground and hurled it 50 feet across the plant, as if it were a frisbee. A firestorm engulfed the space, with ferocious tendrils of flame rushing down corridors and bursting straight through fire doors. A roaring orange column tore through the roof. The windows in storefronts up and down Main Street shattered, Flaming debris rained down on the houses of Lodi. Jose Milan was walking back to the plant with a coffee for Calixto, when the blast threw him clear off his feet. The sundered roof of the plant belched acrid chemical smoke into the air. Jose watched the conflagration, knowing his friend was inside. He didn't know what to do, he felt helpless. Calixto was killed instantly, his skull crushed by the force of the blast. He was burned so badly that later, his corpse could be identified only by dental records. Three other men were killed alongside him in the explosion. Another was covered in burns over 90% of his body and would die in the hospital several days later. 40 people were injured. One man who had been inside the plant and seen the fireball but survived, said that it was like staring into the sun. For days, the plant smoked, homes were damaged, a toxic green runoff oozed out of the devastated facility. It trickled down Main Street and drained into the Saddle River. The pollution fed into the Passaic River, sickening waterfowl. Thousands of fish went belly up and drifted to shore, lining the riverbank, pale and dead. A federal investigation would eventually cite nap for a bevy of safety violations and issue a conspicuously modest fine of $127,000. Prosecutors considered bringing manslaughter charges, but opted not to in the end. One longtime Purdue Frederick employee, Winthrop Lang, said at the time that Knapp should not have made the transition to manufacturing chemicals for other companies on a contract basis because it didn't have the facilities or the technical people to do custom blending. Another former Knapp official, a Polish-born chemist named Richard Bongsa, concluded that the company had been reckless in assigning dangerous jobs to inexperienced workers. They never asked questions to decide whether someone had an aptitude for chemical work, he said. Facing a storm of emotion and acrimony from its own employees and from the people of Lodi, Knapp announced that it would not rebuild the plant, meaning that everyone who managed to survive the blast would now lose their jobs. A spokesman quoted the company's owners as saying, we will not go where we are not wanted. The spokesman was at pains not to mention any names, but the owners he was referring to were the Sacklers. If this were a different company, or a different family, there might have been some lip service to prevailing notions of where the buck stops, or the finer points of corporate social responsibility, or even just an expression of sympathy for the dead. But the Sacklers assiduously distanced themselves, not just from any sense of responsibility for the tragedy, but for any connection to it whatsoever. The family issued no apologies or condolences. They appeared at no funerals. They made no public statements whatsoever. Howard Udell, the company lawyer, oversaw the legal response for the Sacklers. And as a rule, he tended to counsel against issuing apologies or making any admissions of personal accountability. Richard Bonxa, the Polish chemist, who had originally been hired by Richard Sackler himself, said that the company had issued strict orders that nobody discuss what had gone wrong. What it felt like, Bonxa said, was a cover-up. Just the same, it didn't take long for journalists from the local Bergen County paper, The Record, to discover the real identity of Knapp's owners. They're a family of American tycoons and philanthropists, the paper reported. Their international spectrum of friends includes Britain's Princess Diana, Nobel Prize winners, influential entrepreneurs, in general, the upper crust of society. They're not the Rockefellers. They're the Sacklers. For months, reporters from the record tried to solicit a comment from Raymond or Richard Sackler, but neither father nor son would say a word. They were implacable, apparently indifferent. Finally, One day in the fall of 1995, seven months after the explosion, one of the reporters ventured into Manhattan and managed to buttonhole Raymond Sackler outside the British consulate on 68th Street. This was Raymond's territory, the Upper East Side, just a few blocks from the Sackler townhouse on 62nd. It was another rainy day, and Raymond was dressed for a special occasion and on his way into the consulate when the reporter stopped him and asked about the blast. We've been in the field for 40-odd years, Raymond said. We know what safety is, and we're very concerned with people's lives. All people's lives. But do you feel any sense of personal responsibility for this tragedy? The reporter asked. Absolutely not, Raymond replied. Then he turned and headed into the building. It was an exciting day for Raymond, one that he was not going to allow some pushy reporter from New Jersey to mar. In recognition of his record of philanthropic gifts in the arts and the sciences, he was being granted an honorary knighthood by Queen Elizabeth, and the British Consul General was to present him with a special medal in a formal ceremony. On the subject of this distinction, Raymond was more forthcoming, declaring himself deeply moved to be recognized by the Queen in this manner. It's an honor, he said. It has a great impact on me. Thank you for listening to that chapter from Empire of Pain. The book's available now, and the audiobook is as well, wherever audiobooks are sold. Until next time, I'm Patrick radden